You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, listeners, a tale of economic intrigue on this week's Renegade Economist. First time in a number of years I've had a two-part episode, so please stick with this because this story epitomizes everything that is wrong with the sort of monopoly capitalist atmosphere we live under, and it includes uh, Australia's own multi-billionaire James Packer, one of the most famous superstars out of Hollywood, essentially trying to elbow their way onto one of the last remaining untouched paradises on planet Earth. Let's just jump into it. Our interviewee today is Tekla C. Nega Melchior, who grew up in the United Nations. Her mum was a senior, senior bureaucrat there. So she's been on the inside of trying to balance these incredible international forces over a long period of time. And Tekla, being the character she is, she just jumps into things. So uh, let's just uh, start off with her giving us a precy on her background. And as chief delegate to the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations for the International Union for Land Value Taxation and Free Trade, which enjoys the, a consultative status with ECOSOC, uh, I am a trained cultural anthropologist. So there are a lot of elements to what's going on in this new phase of land grabbing, which I termed in 2015 as 21st century manifest destiny. And what is kind of amazing about what's going on in the Central America, South America and Caribbean region is that we're seeing the newest form of ethnic cleansing. We're seeing now that you don't need gas and bullets anymore to erase a people. And we're seeing how capitalism has become a really distorted, grotesque version of itself. And the sad thing, not only as an anthropologist, as a Georgist, and as the representative to the United Nations, is that we are at a place this early in the 21st century where it appears that results mean more <laughs> than really anal analyzing what the effects of convention, treaties, and let's say aspirational goals like the Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations are really doing to populations. And that is the one thing that is keeping me up at night, that ethics, decency, and history are sort of sh shunted to the side in order to say, look, we've got a green world, we've got a green world. The problem is that everything that we're doing to make this green world is, you know, this, the, the, this green initiative sort of thing is detrimental to the well-being of not just a small population, but the region as a whole. So 
that's sort of where I'm coming from, that, that the George's paradigm is something that I grew up with. I am betwixt and between because I am the only Ithio-Barbudan in the world. I am the only person who comes from two societies. I was born in Ethiopia. My father's Ethiopian. Our, our family goes back 5,000 years in Ethiopia. My mother is Barbudan. And through my mom, I'm Barbudan. And in both societies, communal ownership of lands is at the epicenter of who and what we are. And in both societies, we're seeing massive land grabs. So, you know, trying to promote the commonsensical approach to land value taxation, it is all of what I'm about. <laughs> it, is, it is the alpha and the omega of my professional work, as well as my, you know, my spirit, my, my personhood. So a bit of background on Barbuda. It's a tiny island off the coast of Antigua in the West Indies. I think it's only something like 64 square miles. So uh, it was annexed by the British Empire way back in 1685 when it was leased to the Codrington brothers. So the nation was in a state of legal limbo over much of its time. But uh, in 1901 and then 1904, a Land Act was passed. Uh, then in 1976, things were formalised even further with the Council Act. Now, the Barbudans were brought to the island from uh, both England and Africa as employees rather than slaves of the Codrington brothers. And over time, they developed a feisty reputation fighting for their rights. Let's see how this stacks up against the might and power of a billionaire and the hype of a superstar. However, in 1976, aware of the fact that the two land acts that were in existence, 1901 and 1904, there'd be a, a problem because even though Barbuda is, or was up until recently, the most perfect functioning de democracy, that's to say one man, one vote, one man of age, one vote, we were still dependent on that old system of the elders conveying our wishes to some large degree to the central government and, of course, to the governor general, her majesty's representative or his majesty's representative in Antigua. So um, Sir Claude Earl Francis wrote what became known and what was known as the Council Act. And the council's actions uh, or functions are solely to convey to the central government of Antigua and the governor general the wishes and, and, and desires of the people of Barbuda, thus confirming that everything is done in common for the common good and is, and, and is thus owned in common. Any lease agreements, any financial transactions were debated in the village meeting there would be, it would be an up or down vote with the majority winning. And then the council would then in, inform the government of, of Antigua, the central government, this is what we want. And the government's function then was to vet 
or verify any lease proposals that were coming to the people of Barbuda and seeing whether or not, you know, these were people of good standing, if they had the money to back whatever it was that they said that they wanted to do, and whether it was feasible within the law, the, the laws of the nation as a whole. Mm, because as a tropical paradise, there have been a number of entrepreneurs who've tried to edge their way in to set up a yeah. various tourist resorts. Not just tourist resorts. We have had every conceivable <laughs> we've had all sorts of flotsam and jetsam wash up on our on our shores. In fact, um, 60 Minutes did a, a, a long piece, the a television ma news magazine here in the United States, did a long piece on the Knights of Aragon who had hoped to establish a fiefdom in, in Barbuda, the, the old medieval group that was revitalized by persons like Rosano Brazzi, um, President Reagan, and... Um, the former president of Italy. I mean, it, it, we've had everybody. We had T Timothy Leary wanted to come and grow a pot farm in the 1960s. We've had um, people wanting to do medical experimentation. We've, we've had a lot of different um, elements come to our shores. But m there have been quite a few who wanted to establish hotels because Barbuda is considered one of the top 10 beaches in the world. Um, they're incredibly beautiful and pristine. And we've only had, for the longest time, there was only one hotel, Coco Point Lodge. And then guests that were asked to vacate Coco Point Lodge then built what is what has become known as the K-Club. A, a Italian designer, the late Carizia, she built the K-Club right next to Coco Point Lodge. And it became famous because it was one of... Um, the late Princess Diana and her her boys' favorite uh, vacation spots in the Caribbean. It was it, it is on one of the most beautiful beaches in Bar in Barbuda. But many all of them are really lovely. But this one is uninterrupted and and turns pink between December and oh, around May. They're pink sand, and in and the rest of the year they're they're just an opalescent, beautiful white. So there have been a lot of people who've come. But not just for hotel, for purposes of um, establishing hotels. In 2007, the opposition government, known as the, the UPP, came in, and as um, an election promise, they passed the 2007 Land Act. There were a lot of problems with it, but the essential, it, it essentially guaranteed the continuation of what has been the practice for about. 250 years in Barbuda, and that is the common ownership of land. The relationship with Antigua and Barbuda was such that whoever we granted a lease to, they would pay into the Barbuda accounts. But at some point, under the ALP-led government, that got corrupted, and the monies went directly into the Antiguan treasury, and they in turn would dole out money to the, the, the Barbudans' money back to the Barbudans, thus making them further dependent on Antigua. That uh, sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? And, of course, uh, with poor levels of transparency, was it a challenge finding out how much uh, land rent was paid into that account? Honestly, it's still a challenge, and it's become more obscured because of, of, of the challenge of finding out where 
where a lot of the monies that were given and pledged and whatnot for this, for Hurricane Irma. This is a real problem, trying to untangle the money. And you talked earlier about banking, so-called banking reforms. <laughs> it's hard to say that how they have, these so-called reforms have really hit the Caribbean because we're having a really hard time finding accounts, finding and tracing funds. So I suspect that at some point, one of the things that are gonna, that's going to have to be done is a full audit of the financial relationship that um, Antigua and Barbuda has had because the Prime Minister, Gaston Brown of Antigua, has taken a great deal of pains to misrepresent the Barbudan people by calling Barbuda pretty much a welfare state and implying that we have been, the people of Barbuda have been, have been supported by Antigua as opposed to really understanding what that what that uh, relationship is is all about, you know, because we have things like, unfortunately, there's a sand mining operation in in Barbuda, and to the best of my knowledge, the people who are looking into find into the financial relationship are are having a bit of a hard time trying to track who and where. <laughs> who are involved entirely, to what degree, and where that money has gone because it's been substantial. We just keep making these same problems again and again when it comes to a foreign aid and disasters. It's staggering that it still continues in 2018. So Hurricane Irma hit Barbuda and was, from what I can see, a tragic uh, natural disaster. And uh, from that, uh, things have changed rather radically. Yeah. Um, when Irma hit on September 6th, it hit Barbuda first. It hit Barbuda hardest. I, I, I almost, it sounds terrible, but I almost chuckle when people talk about what, what the gale force was because within uh, very quickly, the all meters were broken. You know, nobody really knows how bad it was, but we do know that we have moved from the category, you know, the, the categorization from one to five. This is now called a five plus. Ironically, there was um, there are historical um, documents that say that there were there was in our history at least one such hurricane in which the people were just flabbergasted that anybody survived after the hurricane. For some reason, um, well, not for some reason, it was absolute devastation. I mean, it wasn't faulty uh, building, as people had said. It's just that only recently have we have we gotten codes that address Hurricane 4 or better, you know. Um, but the entire island was evacuated for fear of the other hurricane, Maria, which was had been charted to come right after it, save for about two dozen people who had remembered what our um, elders had told us when we were younger, which was when you see something like that coming, go up into the highlands. And the highest point in Barbuda is 110 feet, and, and they're caves. And so we had two dozen people who were in the caves when the evacuation took place. And they came down about a week later to find an empty Barbuda and then in turn 
according to reports that we have received, were forcibly removed from Barbuda and moved to Antigua. Soon after, uh, aid had come in the form of formally the United Nations, United Nations Development Program, and all the agencies and programs that go with it. In terms of what is the norm in Barbuda, there was, because all the people had been dispersed in Antigua, there were no village meetings. There were no, um, there was no place in which all Barbudans could assemble, sort of catch themselves, find out, you know, who, who, who and what was there in terms of assistance to start rebuilding. And decisions were made for the Barbudans from a very early point without the input of all the Barbudans. So that was the first salvo. Yeah, that was the first means by which they were able to start to dis disassemble the society and, and our... Um, communal way of life, you know. Um, after that, uh, as I said, not only the United Nations, but I have to say there were numerous uh, other non-governmental organizations and aid organizations that came in and really, really were remarkable. I have to say, I went down to Barbuda, Antigua and Barbuda in October, and I was very much impressed with um, Samaritan's Purse with the Red Cross, Red Crescent. These were people who were just phenomenal and understood after having met the Barbudans that this was a trauma that was so new and so unfathomable for the Barbudan. I mean, as I said, there were other hurricanes in the past but for generations, we were, the Barbudans were left to sort of withstand by themselves. And um, for the first time, they were uh, removed from their land and, and, and therefore somewhat dis discombobulated. Um, and we're now finding, though, that it appears as if agreements have been made on behalf of the Barbudans that... Um, now, with the government deciding that they were going to absorb Barbuda into Antigua with no legal standing, as anybody can really adequately explain, um, it, it's, it's a problem because we're trying to... It's the age-old question. When one is developing a place, developing it for whom? You know, in, Antigua, in Barbuda... There is no indigence. There is no homelessness. There's no malnutrition. And we have, uh, we had a hospital that was a state-of-the-art hospital, and nobody was in it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you're sort of saying, well, what is this? What is this presentation of the Barbudan that is is circulating the world, both by the central government of Antigua and certain media outlets? Who who are you talking about? So that's, that's one of the things they're having to deal with. And now the other thing they're having to deal with is the, the long-term plan uh, that had been rejected out of hand by the Barbudans in 2015 and 16 called Paradise Found, which is the hotel scheme that 
was presented to the people of Barbuda by um, the actor, the character actor, Robert De Niro and um, Mr. James Packard. This is where we insert the (laughs) sounds in here, listeners. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist, and we're just at the crux of this story. We're talking with Tekla Nega Melchior, and uh, this is a story I first heard about three years ago, how Robert De Niro and James Packer were circling this idyllic uh, island, trying to put a stake in the land and claim it as their own. Now, when you first told me this story, there were some pretty extraordinary uh, clauses incorporated in their uh, initial proposal. Mm. The one that that disturbed me a great deal, I mean, it's, it's sort of difficult to say which one was most offensive, but this one bothered me. There was a section there that said that there was a mild buffer zone in which nobody could traverse. Um, and that just, you know, that was just, that started screaming apartheid to me. Not only could no Barbudan, but no military or police of any stripe, not just Antiguan, of any stripe could come past this zone. The other thing was that anything that they found unsightly or not in the aesthetic of their proposed project, um, they had the right to destroy And, of course, the people of Barbuda had a problem with that because what they may find unsightly, they may find nostalgic, was the argument that was put forth. In addition, they required an international airport to be paid for by the people of Antigua and Barbuda. And they required all rights, subterranean, suboceanic, and the air rights. Now, the Barbudans, who, again, are not presented accurately. They say that there are 1,800 Barbudans. No, there are hundreds of thousands of Barbudans, but because of we, because Barbudans have always known the fragility of the land, there's an understanding that you leave Barbuda, those you know who are capable and who show um, skill and ability, they leave for their education, they, have, they go out, they work, they have their children, and upon retirement, you go home and you teach the young, you know, uh, and then they go out, and it's, it's a cycle kind of thing. We know that no more than 1,500 people can occupy the island of Barbuda because of the nature of the ecology, you know, or ecologies. So when this man, when, these, when this proposal came, and even the proposal itself was somewhat shocking because it, there has never been a memorandum of agreement presented to the people of Barbuda. And that had a lot of eyes, eyebrows raised because the question was, well, what agreement took place and with whom. There has always been a lease proposal. But this memorandum of agreement went further to talk about the repatriation of monies uh, earned through this venture. Tax-free holidays, um, 25 years, a lease period for 99 years with a renewal built in for another 99 years. So in essence, 198 or 200 years. And that when um, land becomes available, this is all printed in the, um, in the memorandum of agreement, they would be able to purchase the land at the, at, um, at, uh, the rate that locals pay. Now, when Barbudans talk about owning land in common, 
It means that you cannot sell land or alienate it in any way. So if a young, say, say, say two Barbudans or a Barbudan falls in love, wants to bring home his, his or his wife or her husband, they can take up a plot of land and they say, we're going to build our house here. The, the village decides is that, you know, does that work within our sense of where uh, residents should be? Yes, go ahead, build it. But when the people, should the people decide to leave Barbuda, the couple, the happy couple and their family decide to leave Barbuda, they can't sell the land, but they can sell the structure on the land. If they're unable to find someone who wants to purchase it, then anybody who's Barbudan can buy it, but no outsider can buy that land. So when this memorandum of agreement was presented with all sorts of clauses, including, as I said, the tax-free holiday for 25 years with a renewal built in, the repatriation of all funds, the right to bring in their own workers and be exempt, yeah, yeah, mm. there was nothing. It was just, it was just, it was the most remarkable, it is the most remarkable document of unfettered greed meeting unfettered corruption. <laughs> you know? uh, and you haven't uh, mentioned the thing, the number one clause I thought you were going to mention, and that was the maritime land grab they were after of how many kilometres out to sea? Well, when the first thing was rejected, a second one was presented, and that that one was more vague in terms of how far they get to go out into the sea. Because we have a standing arrangement with any, well, with the existing hotel, what well, was the existing hotel, Cocoa Point Lodge. We, the Barbudan fishermen, had the right to the high water mark, right? And there had been a back and forth with the owners of them. So when this whole thing about everything subcutaneous, sub-oceanic, and air rights came up. Someone had to sort of stand up and say, look, we have economists too. And when we say we own the land in common, we mean not only terra firma, but economic land. And that includes our air rights. That includes whatever's under the, uh, under the ground. Because Barbuda has a, a water table that is less than two feet um, beneath uh, ground level. So can you imagine having the rights to our water, our fresh water? So they were like, no, rewrite this, come back, and we'll see what can be done. Now, it was, it was hardly touched. They came back, not once, but twice, again, with the memorandum of agreement, expanding what they can, again, repatriate, and that employment would be offered the Barbudans through them being taught how to make, uh, what do you call, trinkets and sell it in their gift stores. And um, yeah, <laughs> which again was one of those things that the people just sort of burst out laughing. We have Barbudan chefs that are Michelin rated. You know, we have, we have Barbudans who are Australians, the highest ranking Antiguan and Barbudan that ever worked in the history of the Secretariat of the United Nations was Barbudan. So you're not dealing with you know, the, what, what is being presented by these um, developers slash hoteliers slash philanthropists, or for that matter, the central government. These are educated people. If you see any of the, of the um, coverage of uh, news media, the videos and, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and I assume a documentary film is going to come out, 
We're talking about people who are amongst the most highly educated in this hemisphere, but they just prefer that lifestyle. It's a very laid back lifestyle and they live off the land. Now, the people of Barbuda rejected it out of hand. Nevertheless, a vote was pushed. And for the first time in the history of the village meeting and the, and the, and the council act, the prime minister arrived in Barbuda for that vote, accompanied by police and military. When one person stood up and asked why the prime minister was there and why there was this show of force, Mr. Fabian Jones, a former council member, he was detained and taken to the pol to, to police station. He was, he was not permitted to vote that, that night. A lot of people voted and some, and there was some concern because a lot of the names and the people who were there were not Barbudan. The vote went through. Somehow they say it passed. In short order, what became a memorandum of agreement became an act the Paradise Found Act. All right, listeners, we are just warming up on this story. I could put the rest of this on the podcast, but I want as many people as possible to listen to it. So stay tuned next week for part two of uh, this harrowing story, one of the last places on the planet where communal land title still exists. The land-grabbing game continues unabated. End of line.